please have your Bibles open again at Hebrews chapter 12, uh, so that we can uh, study uh, the Word as we go through verses 4 down to verse 13. God's fatherly discipline. As we were saying earlier, one of the uh, great issues of our day is what is sometimes called the problem of suffering. Uh, The existence of pain, suffering, is regarded as one of the the big guns in the anti-God artillery of intellectuals like Stephen Fry. Uh, Stephen Fry has only got to cite uh, an unusual form of cancer that besets children to speak with passion and rage and gives the impression that the argument is settled. There can be no God if there are such painful experiences in the world. And there are many responses that can be made from from the Christian side, uh, apologies, uh, defences of the the faith, uh, ranging all the way through from the the very fact that pain in some way is necessary in life, and without it uh, we would be exposed to all manner of danger if we did not have a feeling of, of pain. But what's vital to realise is that each, each one case of suffering is individual and is unique for that person and can feel overwhelming. Indeed, when I was uh, preparing the message, tonight's message, I sought to prepare my own heart by reflecting on some of the, the individual cases of, of suffering uh, that I have shared with others in the, in the course of, of ministry down through the years. Uh, instances which uh, set apart the, the thinking through of suffering as uh, a real-life dilemma rather than an abstract consideration. So I think of a woman in Barbas Lewis who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and subsequently abandoned by her husband endured a a struggle with depression, had uh, a daughter who uh, fell into taking drugs and who died from an overdose. I can remember the pathetic scene at the funeral and how numb with grief she was. I can think of the the, the barrier of resentment that I could never feel that I could uh, broach in Discussions with uh, a man in North Sky whose life had been altered definitively in a car accident as a young man, leaving him without the use of his legs. And there have been lives which have been torn apart by rape and the subsequent failure of justice and trauma from child abuse and so on. And all of these things remind as remind me of the fact that what we, what we are exploring tonight is not some abstract idea, but something which is deeply personal and is always unique. And because that's so, it can have the capacity to catch us off balance. And that's the very real situation that the writer to the Hebrews is addressing because they were, they were experiencing suffering and it seems as though that the experience of suffering was tending to throw them off balance. They have genuinely suffered. Chapter 10 recalls the day after they were converted. Uh, He recalls their situation. 
and verses 32 on. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. These were the early days and they were able to, to joyfully endure you know, the loss of property and imprisonment and so on. And now it seems as though they're almost uh, in a midlife Christian crisis. And the, the ongoing nature uh, of suffering Uh, That sense of being ostracized by former friends is getting to them. And they're being cut off balance. And so there are these constant exhortations to to focus again. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Think through the faith. Work through. Stand fast. Finish the race. And the response that the writer makes uh, is to help them and us place suffering in a context and first he shows us that suffering is a spiritual matter it's a struggle uh, to win through against sin and then he gives us that framework that is so helpful uh, in many situations but especially perhaps in suffering the knowledge of God as father the the great privilege of being brought into the family of God and in knowing God as Father and understanding uh, God's fatherly ways with us, which include his discipline. And then he concludes uh, in the the last verses of our section uh, in an appeal to them to, to live Christianly in the midst of their suffering. Well, suffering is a spiritual issue Uh, that is signaled by verse 4, which describes their suffering as uh, your struggle against sin. Uh, Suffering is a spiritual issue. And in this struggle, it is a response to suffering, uh, which is the key thing. Uh, It's a response which either becomes good or bad, uh, righteous or unrighteous. You see, some people look upon uh, pain in itself as a moral evil. And actually, pain, uh, from a biblical worldview, is the the result of a moral evil. It's the result of of sin. It's a consequence of sin coming into the world. Uh, It's it's a wee bit like uh, a, a, a burst tire on a bike is not a moral evil. Uh, Maybe the result of a moral evil is someone has come and slashed the tire. Uh, But the, 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 the flat tire is not evil in itself. But our response to that... Uh, brings forth a response which is either uh, a righteous or an unrighteous response. So our response to suffering uh, is that which will either see us grow or regress in a spiritual life. I love um, Alfred Wainwright's uh, quote. There's no such thing as bad weather, only unsuitable clothing. Okay? So weather's not bad in itself, but you can be stupid and go out in the rain uh, in your shorts and so on. And it's the same with regard 
uh, to the suffering and the human condition, uh, it is not in itself uh, a moral evil, it is a brute fact, and a response to that uh, brute fact uh, is what shapes us spiritually. It can be God's way, for example, of breaking through the complacency of a comfortable life. And because that uh, is something which is often required, because sometimes we, we raise barricades to, to the living God uh, through our routine and through our security and through our, our possessions and the stability and the, the, the kind of peaceful and tranquil nature of our lives. God sometimes disrupts that. C.S. Lewis spoke of uh, pain as God's megaphone to get our attention. In suffering, God is speaking to us through his megaphone to gain our attention. And it's interesting that at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when we have the, the Beatitudes, which uh, describe those who are blessed of God, isn't it interesting that in different ways, these are people who are suffering or have suffered. People uh, who are poor in spirit, they recognize that they don't have any moral credit in the bank. They mourn, uh, they hunger and thirst. Uh, it's not that their pain is taken away, but it's redeemed in order to bring them spiritual blessing. So there's this theology of reversal. It's the empty who are filled. The full are sent away. Uh, it's the poor who are blessed. It's the hungry that are given righteousness. So this is a spiritual issue and it is possible for us to know blessing uh, through uh, something which others would regard as, as bad in itself. But we're warned that there's ways that we may lose out on this blessing. And there's two ways that we may miss out on it. And we, make, we may make light of the Lord's discipline. And verse 5, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. How do we do that? Well, we could very simply refute, uh, fail to recognize uh, the presence of God's hand in pain or suffering in our lives. We might say, well, I've got nothing wrong in my life. There's, I've got no pains or trials in my life. Well, we may be uh, blessed at that particular point, but it's true, uh, is it not, to some extent, that we all face uh, uh, even minor uh, setbacks and frustrations, uh, things that block our way, difficulties in relationships. And these are all ways of God uh, using something in order to discipline us. And therefore we should minimize them. We shouldn't make light of them. So we minimize or we, we make light of, of, of God's discipline when we fail to actually acknowledge that uh, there is any discipline going on at all. And we can also make light of God's discipline by thinking of what we have to do is to simply get through it. Uh, it's a stiff upper lip approach to suffering. And so we just get our head down and we grin and bear it and we come through it and we've learned nothing from it. You know the saying, you can either go through suffering or you can grow through suffering. Are we making light of the Lord's discipline because we're trying to go through suffering rather than to grow through suffering? 
Stoicism is the stiff upper lip. Stoicism says, I'll just get through it. Christianity recognizes the hand of God and asks the question, what's God saying? The other, the second major way in which we fail to benefit from trials is when we lose heart. And you know the kind of thing that happens here. Uh, our situation seems to become so intense that we cry out in frustration, Lord, I can't take any more of this. Why are you doing this to me? And eventually we just lose heart, feel resentful against God. And instead of gratefully learning from our circumstances, we seek to avoid them. And instead of seeking our comfort in Christ, we seek instead deliverance from any source at all from the trial. John Donne, 18th century Christian and poet, uh, sorry, 17th century Christian and poet, uh, was somebody who learned a lot from suffering. Uh, first of all, he had an angry father-in-law who saw to it that he was dismissed from uh, his job and blocked from a career in the law. And Dunn did what uh, many people have done in the past when they're uh, short of options. He went into the ministry and he went and obtained a parish and his wife Anne uh, died shortly afterwards, leaving him with seven children. A few years later, in 1623, uh, he noticed spots appearing on his body, which were diagnosed as bubonic plague. Uh, it was later uh, discovered that it wasn't actually bubonic plague, but it was a form of typhus. But Don's strength sapped away, and he was lying on what he considered his deathbed, and as he lay on his deathbed, he began to write uh, a series of reflections, very honest reflections, uh, which would later be uh, put together in a work called Devotions. He's honest about seeing his suffering as meaningless. And then there came a moment of discovery when he is lying in bed and he heard a bell ringing. And the bell was was uh, sounding out a, a funeral. It's a solemn, melancholy sound coming through the open window. And Dunn thought that somebody, some of his friends, uh, realising that his condition was more serious than they had felt able to disclose to him, had instructed the bell to be rung for his funeral. And then he realised, of course, it can't possibly be that and discovered it was a neighbour's death from the plague. And in Meditation 17, he writes the famous lines, No man is an island entire to itself. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And that was his moment of discovery. Uh, he had lived life in his early years as something of a playboy and a spendthrift. He had wandered into ministry. And this was God's wake-up call to him. He had discovered now the unique ability of pain to break through 
that the normal defenses and everyday routines that we raise up as barriers against God. Uh, He wrote, I need thy thunder, my God. Thy music will not serve me. He began to question whether he was ready to meet with God. Uh, In his devotions, he reflects on his circumstances. Uh, Even this pain could be redeemed. His illness prevented him, obviously, from doing many good works. But that bell had reminded him of this less fortunate neighbour and many others suffering in London. He could learn humility, gratitude, trust, faith. He had time for prayer. Uh, He discovered that even uh, his bedridden phase of life was not meaningless. And he directed himself towards spiritual disciplines and eventually uh, this writing which became known as devotions. C.S. Lewis spoke about God's megaphone. John Donne spoke of God's thunder. I need thy thunder. Thy music will not serve. Now once we are alerted, once suffering uh, does a work like that, once it awakens us to the reality of the fact that we are mortal, we are one day going to pass over. And where will we be? Once we have come to uh, a spiritual awakening, uh, we need also a frame to understand suffering's work in our lives. And the writer gives us that framework in terms of understanding it as God's fatherly discipline. The Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father. What is discipline? Discipline could be described in one way as necessary pain. Uh, in every realm where uh, anything worthwhile is achieved, uh, there's, an, um, uh, there's an element of pain. There's pain for the athlete or the, the sportsman in achieving their objective. Uh, there's no gain without pain. And the word that's used uh, for discipline uh, is the word paideo. So it's the word from which we get pediatrics, uh, the science of child health. And in the different translations, it's variously uh, rendered as chastening, discipline, and so on. So, in the, nor- in the natural realm of things, the, the person who has responsibility for the raising up of children has a complex matter on their hands. And the raising up of children involves more than simply telling the child what to do. Now, especially in the secular world, many uh, parents think that that is all that is necessary. And the reason that they think that is because they are laboring under the misapprehension that people, and especially little children, are essentially good. And if they only are told what to do, they will invariably do what they are told is the good thing. And we come with a much uh, greater sense of realism to the Bible, which tells us that we are sinful and we do not naturally do uh, that which is good. We have within us this uh, inner warp, which actually makes us go in the opposite direction. And therefore, there has to be a corrective from the parent, from the father. Uh, In fact, a father's task is to inflict uh, pain of some kind. 
uh, which could be the, the, the uh, foregoing of some privilege or some treat. But whatever it is, uh, it brings in uh, something. It's a kind of deprivation, a kind of suffering, a kind of pain. But it's corrective. It's beneficial. It's uh, instructive. But it's nevertheless painful. That's why in verse 6 the, the word punish uh, is literally scourge. Now that's a pretty strong expression. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges. That's, that means to whip. The Lord is serious about uh, the discipline which he regards us as needing. And as Christians, there are whole spectrum of things uh, which come under this heading of, of discipline or punishment or scourging. Illness, injury through accident, loneliness, depression, uh, or as in the case of the Hebrew readers, opposition because one is a Christian, uh, being ostracized, ignored, sidelined. And the Lord is using all of these things as means to bring about lessons which will uh, enable us to grow spiritually as his children. The Father is intent on ensuring that we are growing more and more in his image. What are some of these lessons? One of the lessons that God teaches us uh, through his discipline is our own sinfulness. Yeah? Nobody ever really discovered, you know, in the sense of it really being a kind of uh, experiential discovery of, of sin, by simply being told about it. It takes us to be confronted by our sinfulness for it to come home to us. And when we're under pressure, the failings in our lives are made apparent. Uh, in a way, they're, they're not apparent when everything is going swimmingly. But when the wheels start to fall off, then our sinful nature is exposed. Uh, take an example. Supposing, sometimes it's not too difficult to imagine this, but supposing uh, one has grown unfit and flabby over the years and time goes on without you ever noticing it. And then you're in an emergency situation. You have to... Uh, run uh, in order to escape something, perhaps swim to safety from a boat, uh, run uh, to, to, to get help, uh, and you are suddenly confronted by the reality of your own unfitness. It's a struggle to do this. You feel really bad at the end of it. It's a wake-up call. How did I ever get into this condition? How did I let myself slide in this way? God gives us uh, pain now and again uh, to reveal our sinfulness and to deliver us uh, from that sin overwhelming us. William Bridges said, the sins of God's people are like birds' nests. As long as the leaves are in the tree, you don't see them. But when winter comes and the leaves fall to the ground, the nests are seen clearly. So one of the, the reasons that God may uh, bring us into uh, a season of winter, whatever that winter of our lives might be, is that we might see our sinfulness. 
Verse 10b, God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. God wants us to leave these things behind to become more like him. God's fatherly discipline is also there to lead us to cherish Christ more. You know, the way we are, the way that our our sinful nature is, the way that our hearts are, there is always the temptation for us to, to love Jesus because of the things we get. When our kids were wee, uh, there was a lady in, in a church in Barvis who was very nice to them and used to come with, with sweets. And uh, they remarked at one point, we love Mora because she brings us sweeties. <laughs> and that's sometimes the way that we are with Christ. We love not Christ, but we love his benefits. And then God comes in fatherly care and removes some of the, the blessings some of the uh, things which make our life run smoothly. And one of the continual battles in the Christian life is to fix our hearts on Christ and to make him our joy and our peace rather than our circumstances. Remember the, the, the accusation that Satan brought against Job? Yes, Job is righteous but it's because you have fenced him around and uh, he has all of these, these material blessings but remove them and he'll curse you. How do we know whether our love is directed ultimately towards God, the giver, or towards his gifts? We know when we experience the loss of some of these gifts. We know where our heart lies. So, the fatherly discipline is there that we might cherish Christ more. So it's important to learn the right lessons when we are in trials. And sometimes when we are, for example, in ill health, uh, Christians go through uh, those experiences which are common to, to everybody and they learn the wrong lessons. Uh, for example, uh, people come through a spell in hospital and their reflection on their time in hospital is expressed as, uh, well, it makes you appreciate your health. Hey, that's not why God put you in hospital. <laughs> God put you in hospital to appreciate Christ so that when your health was removed, you had Jesus with you as something that could never be taken away. Christ is far more important than having good health. The reforming bishop, uh, Hugh Latimer, knew a lot about what it was to experience uh, sufferings. And he spoke about uh, Christian sufferings and trials as sauces, condiments, flavorings uh, to make us uh, relish Christ. For like as sauces make lusty the stomach to receive meat, so affliction stirred up in us a desire for Christ. For when we be in quietness, we are not hungry. We care not for Christ. But when we be in tribulation and cast into prison, then we have a desire to him. Then we learn to call upon him. Then we hunger and thirst after him. Then we are desirous to feed upon him. God is disciplining us as a father. 
And the, the writer tells us that when we are going through these hardships, when we're in a hospital bed, when we're feeling down, when our friends have forsaken us, when we've been dismissed from work, whatever it is that God has brought us through, uh, we're to look upon these things, he says, as evidences of our sonship. And now this is counterintuitive because we might tend to think that, well, these things are going on in our lives. Doesn't God care for me? Uh, doesn't God uh, love me? Am I maybe not a Christian after all when these things are going on? I know the writer says to us, these are evidences of your sonship. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Okay, we might find the logic a bit hard to follow here, but what's going on is that uh, in in a time uh, when uh, the... A wealthy family was looking to, to the heir to uh, succeed and to take over the farm and all of the, the property that the father had. Then, uh, if there was an illegitimate child in the circle, the father didn't, didn't bother uh, training up this child to follow after him, didn't invest in the son in the way that he did in the true-born son. But the true-born son was disciplined, had his behaviour corrected, was shown what his father uh, was pleased to see. And this, the writer tells us, is evidence that we are true sons. The hardship, which may even be punishment for our wrongdoing, is nevertheless evidence we are children of the living God and he is caring for us and shaping us. And his discipline is perfect. Verse 10, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. Now all of us who are fathers uh, acknowledge, at least we should acknowledge, that there there are times when our own training of children was far from perfect. It wasn't properly regulated. It was maybe too lax or maybe too severe. But our Heavenly Father is sublimely perfect in His discipline. Uh, we've been singing Psalm 103 in various versions today. I think we actually sang it three times in different guises. And it's reminding us that God knows us intimately as a father and cares for us. And when he disciplines us, he never disciplines us beyond what is good for us and what we can bear. His discipline is perfect. And that discipline makes us stronger uh, when the writer speaks in verse 11 of us being trained by discipline, the word there uh, is a word from which we get the English word gymnasium. We are in the gym with God. So suffering now becomes pumping iron. Uh, that kind of bodybuilding requires resistance, doesn't it, for uh, it to build up strength in our limbs. Why do athletes go running on sand? You know, it's a strange thing. It's not because it's, uh, it's nice in the feet. Uh, it's because the sand gives way. It's harder to make progress in sand. It's more difficult. But they keep up the training. They keep faith with the instructor who believes it's for their good. And they finish the, the race fitter athletes. Last verses, um, there are these exhortations to to make a level path uh, that those 
uh, who are lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And this phrase, make level paths, is a throwback to Proverbs 4, verse 26. If you look it up, you see the context there is that of living righteously, walking righteously to avoid evil. If in the midst of our suffering we seek to discern God's loving hand, then we will grow ourselves and we will have the potential to encourage others who are also struggling if in the midst of suffering we glorify God by righteous living. If we react to this brute fact of suffering in an ungodly way, in a complaining way, in a distracted way, then there's an impact on others who may be finding it going very hard also. But on the other hand, if we react in a godly way, we can bless, we blessed ourselves and bless others. Some of us heard John Piper on Thursday night in Edinburgh. Uh, John Piper from uh, <coughs> Minneapolis, USA. Now, a number of years back, Piper was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And he wrote a piece uh, entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer, which was really quite hard-hitting. Uh, but it was so true to the, the instruction in the passage. Uh, Ten ways to waste your cancer, he wrote. I don't, I'm not going to read them all. Let me... Uh, just list uh, four or five of them. He wrote, I write this on the eve of prostate surgery. I believe in God's power to heal by miracle and by medicine. I believe it's right and good to pray for both kinds of healing. Cancer is not wasted when God heals it. He gets the glory and that's why cancer exists. So not to pray for healing may waste your cancer. But healing is not God's plan for everyone. And there are many other ways to waste your cancer. I'm praying for myself and for you that we will not waste this pain. And then he goes on to to make this list of ten ways in which you could fail to gain from this, this terrible experience. One, you will waste your cancer if you do not believe God designs it for you. It will not do to say that God only uses our cancer but does not design it. What God permits, he permits for a reason, and that reason is his design. If God foresees molecular developments becoming cancer, he can stop it or not. If he does not, he has a purpose. Two, you'll waste your cancer if you believe it is a curse and not a gift. Three, you'll waste your cancer if you seek comfort from your odds rather than from God. The aim of God in your cancer, among a thousand other good things, is to knock props out from under our hearts so that we rely utterly on him. You will waste your cancer if you think that beating cancer means staying alive rather than cherishing Christ. Satan and God's designs in your cancer are not the same. Satan designs to destroy your love for Christ. God designs to deepen your love for Christ. Cancer does not win if you die. It wins if you fail to cherish Christ. That's powerful stuff, isn't it, you know? But even cancer is a gift in a sense, a discipline, something that will, by God's grace, 
bring about growth. Sometimes people respond to troubles by withdrawing from Christian activity. A crisis hits them, they pull back from fellowship, for coming to the services, from prayer times, they ease themselves out of church-based ministry, and they will say, I just can't cope with this right now. I need some space, some time to myself. Naturally, that's exactly the wrong response to uh, this period, this season uh, of our lives. That is when we need to strengthen our feeble arms and our weak knees. It's when we need the light of the Word of God to make sense of our trials and to complete the work in us that God intends. And as we are encouraged in our trials, we in turn can go on to encourage and comfort others who are going through similar or even dissimilar things. And in all, God gets the glory. And in the end, friends, that is what it is all about. May God bless to us these meditations on his word. We sing a hymn in closing.